0: I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast With All Your Mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. I'm here on a snow day today. Uh, I was looking forward to today because it's, um, it's snowing. And my boys haven't been able to play in the snow very much lately. And then it's been raining on top of the snow all day. So not much opportunity to play in the snow because it's not, no, playing in the rain when it's below like 70 degrees, nothing about that appeals to me. So we haven't gone outside yet, but hopefully later. But anyway, uh, we're continuing on with history and nature and character of the Bible And we've talked about so many different aspects of that, like history and the canon of the Bible and how it was formed, and the major branches of Christianity and what kinds of canons they have, and historical and cultural context, and just all sorts of different things. And one thing that keeps on coming into all of that is Bible translation and how different Bible translations have impacted our understanding. And thinking about the Bible, just kind of connotations with things. And, you know, we talked a lot about how the King James Bible has affected how we read things. So after all of that, I wanted to talk about modern Bible translation. We've talked a bit about how it's been done by people like Jerome and uh, Wycliffe and people like that. But how is it done now? Who does it? And what languages still need a Bible today? So we have a lot to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. Modern Bible translation is pretty different from how it used to be done in ancient times, or even 100 years ago, partly because of technology, but also even concepts like globalism, where cultures aren't so distinct anymore. There's a lot more overlap between cultures, and so there's a lot more overlap in language. So in ancient times, though, it was often one man and maybe some helpers or students of his Translating the Bible from either Latin or Greek, or if you were really lucky, from the original languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So people like Jerome, translating the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. He did that directly from the original languages. He got a lot of flack for it. (laughs) People thought that the Septuagint was good enough, and he why bother breaking from that tradition? And then there was also Tatian. Do you remember this guy, Tatian? He translated the diatessaron, the Aramaic harmonization of the Gospels. That's just another guy, in a different way he did it. He, He did a harmonization of the Gospels. And then there's Wycliffe in the 1300s. It was him and his students translating the Bible into English, but from the Latin Vulgate, not from the Septuagint or from the original languages. So in modern times, or at least in the 20th century, You might have heard stories about people like Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim and other missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador. You might have heard of these guys. They were translating the Bible for Indian tribes, indigenous Indian tribes in the Amazon. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a lot of books, and one of them is Through the Gates of Splendor. It details the whole story of her and her husband Jim traveling to South America and translating the Bible for Indian tribes there. Joanne Shatler is another missionary. She went to the Philippines and with others translated the Bible into the native language of a very secluded tribe of Filipinos. Her story is from the sixties and seventies. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot were from the fifties. That's when they were in Ecuador together. Joanne Shetler, 1960s and seventies was when she was in the Philippines and she wrote a book too. That one's called the word came with power. I'll put those titles in the show notes if you want to look up their books and their stories, they're both really interesting. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot has written a lot of Christian living and kind of discipleship and kind of doctrinal books. And Joanne Shetler just wrote that one book as far as I know, but they're both very good, very interesting. I will say that Joanne Shetler's book is probably easier to read if you want an easy read, but they're both very interesting So with both of them, both Elizabeth Elliott and Joanne Shetler, missionaries were basically dispatched to be project managers and main translators of a Bible into a tribal language. In their cases, there were very few or no Christians that currently spoke that language. It was a very missionary endeavor in a classic sense of evangelizing to people their efforts to translate the Bible were also an evangelistic project to preach and teach Christianity in order to convert the people to Christianity. The missionaries would often work very long hours to learn the language, collect vocabulary, and very, very painstakingly translate the Bible verse by verse Sometimes with the help of other missionaries, like Elizabeth Elliot was a part of a team. There were maybe five, six, seven other missionary couples living around them. But other times they had just the help of the locals or nobody at all. So they were clearly not native speakers of the language that they were translating the Bible into. So like I said, a lot has changed in the world, even in the last 50 years, much less the 100 years before that with technology especially, and Bible translation has changed a lot too. It's much more rare for missionaries to work as the main Bible translator in a project anymore, especially if there are native speakers in that language that are Christian and want to do a Bible translation. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple of key terms here. A couple of them are mother tongue translator and target language. A mother tongue translator means somebody who speaks a language and wants the Bible translated into their language and they do the translating. Mother tongue translator. Somebody, that's their language. They want the Bible in their language. Target language is the language that you want to translate a Bible into. That's target language. So how does it work now? To get the answer for that, I phoned a friend. (laughs) I've always been interested in Bible translation and Many years ago, I think it was uh, maybe 12, 13 years ago, uh, Ryan and I met a guy who's what you would call a Bible translation consultant. He works with a major Bible translation organization and has worked on Bible translation projects in the Asia Pacific area, Africa, and mainland Asia. So you know he has a little bit of experience. So I contacted him for the first time in many years. I'd been getting his newsletter this whole time, but I contacted him and told him about the podcast and said, you know, I, <laughs> I want to make this accurate. I want to know that I really know what's going on because it's been a while since I was involved in Bible translation at all, in any sense. And I thought, you know, if I have a resource that I can use, I better use it so that we can get the best information that we can get. So my friend very graciously agreed to do a Zoom meeting and I recorded it and I'm going to play some parts for it for you. Uh, We talked for a long time, so I can't do the whole thing. I think we talked for over an hour and he told me all sorts of different facts and stories and, but I'm going to play this clip for you because he's going to talk about one of the projects that he was involved in, in Nigeria. And I wanted him to give us a picture of who is working on a project. What does this look like in real time? Like if we could be a fly on the wall of what is it, an office, a church, who's doing these translations and how is it done? So let's listen in while my talks about a project he was involved in in Nigeria. What kind of team, when you say team, what do you mean? Who do you need as a part of a team to do a
1: translation? Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, and most mother tongue translation projects are not just within a family. There's usually some level of a church um, established in that language community that's supportive of that. So, for example, I worked in Nigeria uh, with a team, uh, and it was the team in this case was just two guys, two men. Uh, Who were really dedicated to working on their language, but they had an extensive uh, support system there. The church was very strong in that language group. They, when they had uh, they called it the translation committee, but uh, sometimes they would have 80 to 100 pastors from all over the language area come together and they would be able to talk about translation issues. Um, They invited me, I don't know what your feeling on, on God's name is in the old Testament, but they invited me to give a presentation on what I believe is God's intention in Exodus three fifteen. you know, Yahweh is my name to be by which I'm to be remembered forever. Mm-hmm. And they were thrilled and they based on that presentation and the pastor's agreement, they, they have put Yahweh in the old Testament, wherever it occurs. Cool. Um, So that kind of, that kind of support it's maybe that level of support's unusual. Um, Mm -hmm. but in, in most cases the mother tongue translation team is, is going to come out of a local church, Church. uh, situation and they're going to be chosen by the local church as people of integrity, uh, people that they see as having potential. Um, yeah. So in, 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 in Nigeria, again, um, the uh, SIL is managing most of the projects there. Uh, the, sorry, this is this goes back to 2014. So it's, I, I don't work there now. But mm-hmm. so at least eight years ago, eight nine years ago, this was the situation where SIL would would advise the local churches on what kind of person to choose to be on the translation team. Um, in the Solomon Islands, uh, we worked with a, a um a group well in Solomon Islands there's a Solomon Islands Christian Association made up of six different denominations and they're very involved in all Christian missions and mission and ministries in in the Solomons in fact uh, in order for a foreigner to get a visa to work on Bible translation it had to first be approved by the Solomon mm-hmm. Islands Christian Association before the government would even give you a visa wow. um so the translate and I we worked on the national language there. So because it was a national project, uh, we had uh the our, the three the three Solomon Island translators that were on the team were from three different denominations. Um one was Roman Catholic, one was Anglican, and the other one was from a Baptist background uh, mm-hmm. denomination. That's cool. And and uh so and then I so I came in as translation advisor to work mm-hmm. with them. So that's not a classic mother tongue translation team where they're doing it on their own.
0: So as you can see, the whole setup for modern Bible translation is completely different. A local church in an area of Nigeria spoke a regional language and a local language, and I realize I have to back up. Let's take Nigeria as a case study for understanding how Bible translation has to work. So in Nigeria... It's a, it's a big country with a lot of languages, a lot of distinct ethnic groups, so they have a really complicated system of languages. They have national languages, regional languages, and local languages. So a national language would be something that government does their business in, That something that most people would learn in order to do business. If you lived in a big city, you would definitely know this language. So one of Nigeria's national languages is English. So most people in Nigeria know English. So obviously, they already have the Bible in English in Nigeria. But this is not a local language. It's not a language of an ethnic group in Nigeria. So then you move down to the regional language. It's like three layers on a layer cake. Second layer, regional language. This would be a language spoken across a huge area. It's probably a language of one ethnic group that tends to dominate that area, either because they're just bigger or they have more power in some way. So this group that my friend was translating with, or at least meeting with, they spoke a regional language that also had a Bible. But they, that wasn't what they wanted to read the Bible in. They wanted to speak it in their local language. That was the language for their ethnicity, the one that matched to them, the one that they spoke at home and grew up in. So we have local, regional, and national languages. Just because you have a Bible in a national or regional language doesn't mean that everybody has a Bible in their own language language. okay. And I'm going to tell you a couple of key terms for Bible translation. One of them is mother tongue or heart language. Heart language specifically is a term used by Bible translators to refer to a language that people relate to the most. The one that if God spoke to them, it would be in that language. The language that you don't have to think hard to understand. You just understand it because that's your thing. That's what you speak. Okay. So the people that my friend was talking about used the Bible in the regional language, but still didn't have a Bible in the local language. So that would be a little bit like um, native Spanish speakers in the U.S. only having the Bible in English and nothing in Spanish. Or if you've heard of these, the Uyghurs in China, they're actually a Muslim minority in China. And if they wanted the Bible, they would need a Bible translation if they only had the Bible in Chinese. Or another one that we might be able to relate to more because of current events, it would be like Ukrainians in Ukraine only having the Bible in Russian and nothing in Ukrainian. So the people in Nigeria that my friend met with were already Christian, already had a big Christian presence in this area, already had multiple churches, already had a system of church organization and just needed help to translate a Bible into their local language efficiently and professionally. So my friend is one part of a system of Bible translation. Once he is a part of the process, he helps the local translators, the guys who are native speakers of the local language to make their translations as specific and accurate as possible. And I should say, (laughs) I should have said this before, my friend wanted to remain anonymous Because sometimes Bible translation teams and organizations need to keep private what exact translation projects are in the works currently to keep from attracting too much attention in the wrong places. So I had to edit around when he was talking about certain translation projects that don't get talked about publicly. It's not a secret. Uh, He mentions them in their newsletter, but he doesn't explicitly state exactly where these groups are. And this is because you don't want to attract too much attention in the wrong places. Some countries and areas are totally fine with missionary work. They actually encourage it, or they might have systems already in place to work with it, like how he was talking about with the Solomon Islands. But in other places, it's restricted, and you don't want to draw too much attention to it. You don't want to draw public attention to it, especially to make it a big deal. So many organizations keep things relatively quiet. So we need an alias for my friend. So I thought of one. Uh, I must think pretty simply sometimes. Uh, I call him in my head, Hebrew dude. And that's because he's an Old Testament uh, Bible consultant. And we'll get into that in a second. And dude. <laughs> and that's a bit of a double entendre because in Hebrew, dude means uncle. And I kind of think of him as my my Hebrew uncle. He's like my Hebrew mentor. Um, so we'll call him Hebrew dude. Um, So let's talk about what his role is. He is an Old Testament language consultant. That means that he has the resources, knowledge, and experience to help translators with specifically the Hebrew text. Uh, He knows Hebrew and Greek, but a while ago he stopped working with Greek and kind of just specialized in Hebrew. Most consultants are able to help with both Old and New Testament in Hebrew and Greek, but he's just Old Testament. So when you run into a tricky passage in the Old Testament, and there are many, how is someone who isn't fluent or highly educated in Hebrew supposed to figure out what some specific word should be translated to in their own language for their own Bible? So that's where language consultants come in. They regularly, though not necessarily often, meet with the translation teams to work through tricky areas and just generally check on their translations. They'll do a lot of meetings through Zoom, but then they will also travel into the country where the translation project is happening and meet with the teams face-to-face and work through either a passage or a whole book. It's, it's usually a whole book at a time. So the process of Bible translation starts with the New Testament. You start out translating the Gospels. And then you go back to the Old Testament after you're done with the New Testament. So that means that Hebrew dude would not, in his current role, start a translation project or be around at the beginning of one. So because many translations, if not all of them, start with the New Testament, there are many more languages in the world that have just the New Testament because they haven't gotten around to doing the Old Testament yet. Now, when I was talking to Hebrew dude, It had been so long since I had been associated with or met with Bible translators or anything um, that there was a lot of things that I forgot or maybe I never knew in the first place. But one of them was I was really surprised, and you might be surprised too, by the level of quality that goes into these Bibles. When I thought about the kind of Bible that an Elizabeth Elliot might produce, and no offense to Elizabeth Elliot, I respect her. Uh, I've read like five of her books and I've really appreciated them, but simply because of the technology and circumstances around the translation, I just really didn't expect much. I wouldn't expect much from an Elizabeth Elliot Bible translation. Uh, she worked in a hut on a read desk with a typewriter and index cards to write down vocabulary. And when I imagined that type of environment, I imagine that the Bible translation would be kind of rough as well. I I think what I was imagining was a really good, thorough children's Bible, really simple language, kind of glossing over major facts and just kind of running through things quickly just to get the major narrative, getting lots of narrative, but maybe not so much doctrinal stuff because that's kind of tough and blah, blah, blah. And that's not true. So we're going to listen to two more clips. This is two clips together where my friend is talking about, my friend, we can call him Hebrew dude now, where Hebrew dude is talking about the quality of work put into a new Bible translation. And it's the first of its kind into a local language, but that doesn't mean they're skimping. It doesn't mean they're taking shortcuts and kind of glossing over things. They're going through it in painstaking detail To get it right so let's listen to hebrew dude talk about these
1: um job nine eight animals of the sea gnt and a few others who put Mm. the idea of sea monster here there's no strong evidence of that
0: animals Um, of the sea as opposed to sea monster
1: yeah i'm just saying your translation okay
0: so to, to the average person these probably don't look like big big problems at all right? Like animals right. As, of the sea versus sea monster. Somebody might look at that and say, what's the big deal? Yeah. What would you say to somebody that says this isn't a big deal?
1: Well, I mean, uh, if I said, um I say, well, if you tell me that you love your wife and I just say, you like your wife, is that, mm-hmm. is that a big deal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is, a small nuance perhaps and you might actually like your wife as well as love her but that's not what you said mm-hmm. the meaning is different so mm-hmm. if we believe that the scripture is inspired don't we need to re- represent the meaning as faithfully as possible and so uh, we're working on well how do we develop this dual track we have people that we're developing as consultants which i'll get to in a minute but we also need to develop people that are exegetical advisors that will come alongside teams long term whereas mm-hmm. a consultant come in and out and in and out and in and out um, and you know technically the consultant isn't supposed to be involved in drafting <laughs> we're supposed to be an outside evaluator and say you know this this meets this is within the range of acceptability, and so yes, it can be it can be published. Or uh, some of this can be published, but but there's other parts of it that need to be revised, and then leave it to the team to do that. So I kind of it's probably humorous to some and not to other people. My I I, I say my job is when the team thinks they're done, I come to disappoint them. <laughs> um, uh my when i was a translation advisor working in the solomons with a team our goal was that when the consultant looked at our draft they wouldn't have any questions or problems that was our goal we mm-hmm. we wanted to make it as good as possible mother tongue translation teams want to do the same thing but they also recognize they they recognize that they don't have the background to achieve that mm-hmm. and so they they're expecting the consultants to come And have lots of, you know, for the book of Isaiah, I think I had 700 questions uh, through the book, maybe even more, I can't remember now, for one team.
0: So, the part where Hebrew dude was talking about Job uh, and sea monsters versus sea animals, that wasn't the best example that he had of a problem with the translation that the translation team had. It was just where I stopped him. Uh, to ask the question, this doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, but in another spot, he was talking about how when Job's friends came and visited him, that that's what the translation team had, that his friends came and visited Job. And they left out the small detail that they met first, and then came to travel and meet Job. And it's just these small details that really don't matter Even for the narrative, it really doesn't matter so much whether the friends met together first and then went to go and visit Job, or they just went separately to meet Job. It doesn't matter. But he makes sure that these translation teams are really getting all of the details, all of the nuances, to the fullest extent that is possible. They're not going for good enough. They're going for good. They're going for excellent. So when you talk about what the finished product is of these Bibles, it's nothing like uh, pencil scribbles on dirty paper tied up with string and thrown out the window of a moving car towards the general direction of a village. They're quality, professional, published books with ISBNs and footnotes. I When he was talking about footnotes, how they have to put in footnotes, I thought, really? I don't even like putting footnotes into a paper that I write. When you talk, start talking about footnotes, that's when you know it's professional, right? These Bible translations have footnotes. They're professional, yo. So yeah, Hebrew dude himself admits that they aren't perfect, but he followed that up with immediately, no translation is perfect. So did you hear that? No translation is perfect, guys, so let's not get out the brass knuckles when somebody suggests that NIV isn't the greatest translation or that the King James is the greatest one. They're all imperfect, and God is still sovereign, and everything is okay. But okay, so we're going to stop with that portion. I wanted to give you some more facts and resources, though. Like, you might still be wondering, how many Bible translations are there in the world? How many languages are there in the world? Um, Who already has a Bible translation and who still needs one? Okay, so I have a couple of websites for you that if you're interested, and I hope you are, if you're interested in finding out more information, here's some websites. The first one, and I'm going to put all of these into the show notes so that you can just click on links later if you want to. Okay, so the first one is called the Joshua Project. And this is a website that I stumbled on years ago. I don't even know how I found it, but it's a really good one for knowing facts and figures about both people groups and Bible translation. It's a very evangelical website. It focuses on what people groups have been reached versus unreached, who has had missionaries, who has portions of the Bible, who has a whole Bible translation, how many Christians are in these people groups, what languages do they speak. I mean, it talks about everything. And most of the people groups have a picture so you can see them in their traditional dress. So you can get an idea of their culture just a little bit. But I'm also going to put in a second link right below that one. And it takes you straight to a page that has a map of the world. And you can click on any country in the world And it will tell you every single language that is spoken in that country, including just, hey, there's like 50 English speakers over here and 100 Chinese speakers over here, you know, immigrants and people that aren't native to that country. It'll tell you every single language spoken. And it will tell you if that language group has portions, New Testament, Old Testament, or complete Bible in that language. So it's a pretty cool website if you want to learn more about people groups, about countries, and about Bible translation. That's pretty much my favorite one. The second website is called the Ethnologue. (laughs) And I don't know if they made up this word. This is the only place I know this word, so don't be intimidated by it. The Ethnologue, and it's hosted by SIL, which is one of the, or is the biggest Bible translation organization in the world. They do a lot. And they do a lot of language work, linguistics work. They do a lot of language surveying and a lot of linguistics work, like helping to develop alphabets and written systems for languages that don't currently have one. So they're a very professional, very thorough organization. And they do a lot of work that you wouldn't necessarily think of as missionary work, but helps to eventually get to Bible translation because there's so much groundwork that has to go in before a Bible translation project can even start, such as having an alphabet and written language. So that website, the Ethnologue, has a lot of statistics and good maps for Bible translation, just like Joshua Project. They just come at it from a slightly different angle, a lot of different information. And they do have some paid content on the Ethnologue website, so it's not quite as easy to use as the Joshua Project just because you can't just run all over it and do whatever you want. Um, But it's still a very good website for this kind of information. So as you look at this topic more, you'll realize there's so many moving parts, so much logistics, uh, so many educational needs, and how big of a project and a job, Bible translation is. There's not just one person that can do this. It takes a whole team, multiple teams. So I hope it inspires you to care a little bit more about it, to maybe support it in some way. And hopefully just be aware of the privilege that English speakers have of not only having the Bible in our language, but having so many versions that we have time and energy to fight over which one is best. You know, we have so much privilege. Um, and so with that, I don't, I don't remember who said it, but with great power comes great responsibility. I feel like with great privilege comes great responsibility as well. Um, just to be able to even appreciate how many resources we have in English, not even just the Bible itself, but commentaries and study helps and lexicons and all this stuff. We have so much in English. And it is a privilege for English speakers to not have to care so much about Bible translation because we already have so much in English. So something to not take so much for granted. Yeah, because we have a lot and other people don't have nearly so much. All right. So I hope you learned a lot. I hope that was interesting. Uh, This has been one of my favorite episodes to record. It was really fun talking to Hebrew dudes. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. And that's all we have for today. So I hope you guys have a great day and I'll talk to you guys another time. Bye.